welcome. Uh, a few weeks ago, we began a series in the Gospel of Luke. And usually, as many of you know, usually we just go straight through books of the Bible. We go sequentially through books of the Bible from beginning to end. But this series, this series is going to be a little different. Um, for one, we'll be working our way through the book in chunks. The Gospel of Luke, as you may have heard me say, is, is the longest book in the New Testament. It's, it's very, very long. There's lots to it. It's a beautiful book, but we're going to take that in chunks, unlike what we usually do. So God willing, uh, we'll start next week a series on um, Redeemer's five distinctives, sort of um, what, what is unique about this church in particular, uh, and we'll begin to share that story more and more with you. The elders have spent uh, this year, 2017, you know, we've kind of, we came to our fifth birthday as Redeemer, um, kind of continuing to learn who we are and what we're about and what makes us uh, unique and what our ministry is uniquely among the body of Christ. And we're, we're becoming uh, clearer and clearer about what that is. So we're going to go through a sermon series beginning next Sunday on those five specific distinctives. And then we'll go through, I hope, this year through uh, the fruits of the Spirit, through the seven deadly sins. We'll have all kinds of series inserted into throughout our series on the Gospel of Luke. And though we'll likely read most of this book sequentially, we'll likely go in order. Uh, there will be a few times where we, where we break the story up and we hit unique parts of the story. And today is one of those days. So we began our series in the Gospel of Luke, um, learning about the birth of Christ, reading about the birth of Christ during Advent, kind of preparing for this Christmas season. So in the beginning verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2, we, we get this story. Luke is setting the stage for the Messiah who has arrived. And now we're going to go to the very end. We're going to see where this book is. We're going to go to Luke chapter 22, uh, chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse 36. I'll give you a little bit of a background. <coughs> so in Luke 22, if you're familiar with the book, in Luke 22, we see, we, we, we spend the whole of <coughs> Luke's gospel Understanding and learning about this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. We see his power, his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, undeserved to his people. We see this uh, lengthy ministry that he has in his very small part of the world that we'll see then later through the book of Acts just ripple through every corner of the world. And then the story takes, as, as many of you know, a very dark turn towards the end of the book. In Luke chapter 22, we see this great king, this God, this, this, um, this God in the flesh who is with us. We see him betrayed. We see him arrested. We see him mocked. We see him brought unjustly to trial. And then in Luke 23, we see Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod. And finally, we see Jesus crucified and buried. But then we got Luke 24, folks. We got Luke 24, and in Luke 24, we see Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. All the things that he experienced, all, all, of, all of what had been happening to him over these past two chapters comes to a head in Luke 24. And Luke 24 is all about the resurrected Jesus. At the end of his book, Luke, Luke actually gives in this final chapter these three very vivid stories of his disciples interacting with the resurrected Lord. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. The, the first of these stories, you may remember, uh, so it's, it's resurrection morning, it's Easter morning, and these, these, this handful of women, they go to the tomb um, to, see, to, just, to see what's going on, right? When they go there, 
they realize that the, the stone that had covered the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away. And as they're reeling from this reality, as they see, oh my gosh, what is going on? They see that Jesus' body is gone. It's not there anymore. In that moment, uh, these two angels appear to them and say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Right? What do you guys, what do you guys do? Why, do you, why are you looking for Jesus in this tomb? He's not here. He's alive. He's, he's risen. He, he arose from the dead just like he told you he would, right? What are you, what are you doing here? Haven't you been listening this whole time? And they did remember. And then they ran to tell the other apostles. And, of course, these disciples, at first, they didn't believe them. They didn't believe these women and their account and their experience with the angels, their experience with the open tomb. But Peter, Peter who had betrayed Jesus, all of these disciples, they had seen the crucifixion. They had, they had wandered away. They had abandoned him. Peter specifically denies him three times. And when he hears this news, he runs to go see for himself. And when, G, when Peter gets to the empty tomb, he sees the, uh, the linen that they wrapped the dead body of Jesus in, laying there in the tomb, but no Jesus, no Jesus. Then the story jumps a little bit towards the afternoon, and we see that these two men are walking down the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And these two men, it's a very famous story, the road to Emmaus, these two men, they're talking about what has happened. They're talking about the story that the women had related to them, that these women, they got to the tomb. Jesus is not there. We don't know what happened. Is, is he alive? Is, was he taken? What is going on? And as they're walking away, having this conversation, there's this stranger that just sort of appears and begins to walk with these two men. And this stranger asks these guys, what are you guys talking about? What's, what's going on? What, what, are you, what are you talking about? And they say, well, you must be from out of town, buddy. You must be from, have you not heard? Have you not heard these stories about what's going on these past few days that, that this man, Jesus, was crucified? They say in verse 19 of 24, concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he would one day, uh, he would be the one to redeem Israel. And, and yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things have happened. And, and indeed, some of these women in our company, they've amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early this morning and, and they did not find his body. And so they came back and they told us that they had seen these vision, this vision of angels and they said he was alive. And some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said. They did not find Jesus there. And this stranger who's walking with these men, he responds with, oh, oh foolish ones, you boneheads, right? You, got, you guys have missed it. He says, you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he begins to interpret the scripture to them and all the things concerning himself. And in spite of this, what seems, I think, like an insult to these guys, right, oh foolish ones, um, they invite him to dinner. They invite this stranger to dinner and, as they're, and invite him to stay with them for the night. And as they're there with him having dinner, uh, there's this scene where he, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he blesses it and he gives it to these two guys who he had met on the road to Emmaus. And in that moment, they remembered and they realize this, this is Jesus. This is the one. This is the Messiah. He is alive. And then they ran and told the other apostles. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us 
to the scriptures. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. We have these disciples in the upper room, and it says in verse 36, as they were talking about all these things, right? So the women had their experience. Peter has had his experience. These, these two guys on the road to Emmaus had their experience both on the road and at their house around the dinner table. The disciples are there in the upper room in Jerusalem. They're, they're huddled together. And it says as they were talking about these things, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them. And he says to them, peace. Peace to you. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. It says they were startled. They were frightened. And of course they were. And they thought that they saw a spirit. They, th they thought this was a ghost. And he said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see my hands. You see my feet. It's me. You know me. You've been with me for years. This is exactly the way I told you it would happen. And he goes on. He says, touch me. See me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have today. And when he had said this, he showed them his, his hands and his feet. He showed them the scars. Because they had seen it, right? They'd seen him crucified. They'd seen the, the torture and the torment. And he says, look, that's, I'm the same guy. That's me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? It seems like that's all Jesus does, resurrected. He just, every time we see him, he's eating a meal. I don't know what that's about. And he says, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him some fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And just like he did with the guys on the road to Emmaus, it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to me, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name to the nations, beginning here in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. He promises them the Spirit. And then there's about a 40-day gap from verse 49 to 50. And it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, <clears throat> lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is his ascension. And it says they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and continually in the temple, blessing God. Let me pray for us again. God, speak to us this morning. God, I pray that we would get a sense of the peace that you offer. God, this peace, as Marcus read earlier, that passes all understanding. God, we long for that peace. God, even as we look back, at last year, as we look ahead to this new year, God, we long for peace. And God, so we come to you this morning knowing that you are the only true and lasting source of our peace. And it's in your name that we pray, amen. So Luke, if you remember, if you were here with us last week, Luke begins his gospel and he ends his gospel with the same message, the same central theme. And the message is peace. Jesus brings peace. Jesus wants to give you his peace. We hear in Luke chapter 2, we read last week, this multitude of angels, they show up to the shepherds. They're announcing the birth of Christ, and the shepherds begin to make their way to Jesus. And they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace. 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then here, as Jesus miraculously appears to his disciples in this upper room, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, peace. Peace be with you. The book begins and ends with peace. And in fact, this, this is the common theme throughout the book of Luke as you read through the book and as we'll read, God willing, through this book together. In, in the Greek, this word is uh, irene. In, in the Hebrew, this is a word you may be more familiar with. The word is shalom. Shalom. And we've spent a little bit of time talking about shalom. We went through the Beatitudes uh, maybe a few years ago. But, but shalom is important. And, and it's, it's not like happiness. It's something deeper. It's something better. It's not just calmness or tranquility. Shalom is a kind of rightness. It's things as they should be. It's contentment. It's, it's rest. <clears throat> it's wholeness. And it's, it's both personal and communal. It affects not only us as individuals, but it affects us as a people of God. It's not circumstantial like happiness is circumstantial. There's nothing wrong with happiness, right? But happiness fades. Happiness fades. It's like a vapor. Happy disappears. Happy is temporary. Shalom, though. Shalom. It's not circumstantial. Is that for me, buddy? Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. That's a good elder right there. Let's give Doug a hand. Yeah. And he just, like, woke up a few hours ago from being in Buenos Aires, right? So, I mean, you were on it, bro. Thank you. Shalom is beyond our circumstances, right? Happiness is just, just what it sounds like. It's, it's the way things are happening right then in the moment, right? But blessedness, it, it's better and deeper than happiness. Shalom is deep. Shalom, as we read, passes all understanding. Shalom is eternal. Shalom is contentment when things don't go well. Happiness is contentment when things go well, right? But shalom, that peace that Christ offers, it's contentment when things don't go well. Shalom is joy in the midst of pain. Shalom is peace in the midst of chaos, right? It's not the absence of chaos. It's peace in the midst of chaos. It's hope in the midst of despair. It's better than happiness. Now I want you to put yourselves, I want us all to put ourselves in the place of those disciples that day. They had, they had betrayed him, right? They had betrayed him. They had denied him. Peter specifically just curses. He says, I never even knew the guy. These men had, had watched their leader die by uh, public execution. These, these men and women were now enemies of the state as followers of Christ. And they were, they were huddled together here, terrified, hidden in the upper room in Jerusalem, in this private house. And yet here is Jesus. He shows up in this moment, alive and well. And what does he say? Does he rebuke them? Does he condemn them in this moment? What? Would this resurrected God here in this moment confronting these broken and flawed disciples, would he give them punishment that they deserved? No. No, what does he do? He says shalom. He says peace to you. He doesn't give them punishment. Jesus gives them peace. And how does he do it? How does he comfort 
his disciples. I want to I just go real quickly through these few things. Let's see what Jesus does in this passage. We're going to see here's, here's just six points if you're taking some notes. Jesus is physically present with them. Jesus is there physically present with them and his, with his disciples. Jesus addresses their doubts. Jesus takes them to the scriptures. Jesus preaches the gospel to them. He gives them a mission and then he sends them and gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at these each really briefly. So we see this fact that Jesus is physically present with his disciples. And this really is it's sort of the first and immediate reason for the disciples' fear and anxiety. They think they've seen a ghost. And Jesus says, I'm not a ghost, right? Look at, look at my hands. Look at my feet. I'm, I'm not a ghost. I'm really here. I, touch me. Feel me. See me. I am, I am flesh and bones. I am right here in your presence. And this is important, church. This is important. Because until we realize that Jesus is not just an idea... Jesus is not just a, a moral lesson. He's not just an unknowable deity, but a real, live, flesh and blood person. Will we ever have true and lasting happiness? Will we have true and lasting shalom? Luke actually belabors this point. And he does it several times, but he adds this unique insight about the life and the resurrection. And he quotes Jesus just saying, again, this simple statement, do you, have any, do you guys have anything to eat? I mean, what's more human than that, right? What's more alive than that? There's a sense that Jesus is there. He's resurrected. He's there with his friends. He had every reason to condemn them in punishment. But he says, brothers and sisters, peace. And where's the food? And he sits down with them. He shares this meal with them. He is present with them. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't float around the room like a, like a mystic apparition, right? Apparition. He, he sits down with them to a meal he comforts his disciples with his physical presence. He is present with them. He, he was alive in that day in the upper room. Hear this, church. He was alive that day in the upper room, and he is alive today, here and now, with us. Present. And though he is not, of course, physically present with us, in the same way that he was physically present with his disciples there in that room, he still makes himself known to us through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. God with us. Jesus is accessible to his disciples and to us. Jesus is, is knowable. Jesus is a real presence. Jesus is a friend. Until we get that, we'll likely not have peace. If Jesus is just an idea to you, if, if you look back at the stories of Scripture and say, that Jesus, man, he's a really nice guy. He preached love and forgiveness, and I can get behind that. It's not until you realize that Jesus is alive and well person, offering us friendship with God, knowable, that you'll ever have any lasting shalom. We see that Jesus is present with them. We see, too, here in this story that Jesus addresses their doubts. He addresses their doubts, which I think is interesting. He, he, he doesn't dismiss their doubts as, as you might think he should, right? He's, he's there, right? He's, he's right there in front of them. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, you guys, are, you guys are just a bunch of fools. He doesn't say, well, what are you doing? Of course it's me. He doesn't dismiss their doubts. He engages them. He doesn't say, believe in me in spite of the evidence, right? 
He doesn't say believe in me in spite of the evidence. What does he say? He says, here's the evidence. Believe in me because of the evidence. Trust in me because of the evidence. He says, touch me and see me, experience me. Church, your your doubts, your questions, they're not going to shock Jesus. They're not going to scare away Jesus. Go to, like his disciples, go to Jesus with your questions, with your concerns, with your doubts. And he'll say the same thing to you that he said to them, get to know me. Experience me. Experience my presence. Remember my crucifixion. This story should be a comfort to us too because it is a, a sort of powerfully reinforces the trustworthiness of Scripture. If you were making up a story about a powerfully resurrected God, it likely wouldn't look like this, right? It likely wouldn't look like this powerfully resurrected God sitting on the floor eating fish with a bunch of terrified disciples, right? That's, not, that's probably not how you would write that story unless it were true. And Luke is this physician who's sort of obsessed with detail, and we'll pick that up as we read through this book. Um, but the story wouldn't read like this if it weren't true. Brandy and I, a few years ago, uh, actually with a couple other folks here in the room, we went to Israel together and, and spent several days there. Uh, amazing experience, and we got to see you know, a lot of the, the sacred sites, a lot of the holy sites. And, and one of the things that, that happens when you're there at, at some of these tours, they took us to the, what, what is called the Garden Tomb. Maybe some of you have been there. They took us to the garden tomb, and this garden tomb is this little, it's this little rock space carved out of the hill, and they say this, and it's near where they think Jesus was crucified, and they say, this is it. This is it. This is the place where Jesus was buried. And it's amazing, right? I mean, we're there, and you, this is I mean, powerful. And then later in that afternoon, they'll take us to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and another guide will say, this is it. This is the place where Jesus was buried. This is the place where he resurrected from the dead. And you go, huh, well, okay. And then if you're around long enough, they'll take you about three miles down the road to this other site that they found uh, actually in the 1980s. And it has, it was this, uh, again, a rock cut tomb in the side of a hill, but it had this ancient inscription that says, Jesus, son of Joseph. And they'll say, this is it. Right? This is the tomb. This is the place where Jesus rose from the dead. This is where he was buried. So which is it? Well, who knows, right? And that's the point. Don't you see? Who knows? And in some way, who cares? We're not talking about a dead man. We're talking about someone who's alive. There's, there's never been consensus on, this, on the location of the tomb since the earliest days of the church because it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Jesus is alive. My aunt was telling me, uh, we were talking the other day, and she has, um, she has her, her grandmother, so she has my great-grandmother's spoon rest, you know, in the kitchen where you, you're stirring the soup and you set the spoon down and you rest it there to get you know, to keep the counters clean. She has her grandmother's spoon rest. And she was telling me about the spoon rest that was, that was to her a very, a very sacred artifact now, right? It's a thing to remember her, her grandmother who has passed away. She remembers those experiences in the kitchen with her grandma. And she was telling me about this spoon rest. But when my grandma was alive and well, no one cared about that spoon rest, Right? It's just one more item in the kitchen. But after her death, you see, 
after her death, it becomes sacred. It becomes special. It, it, bec it becomes a, a memorial. Otherwise, it's just completely unremarkable. How many of you have been to Graceland? Anybody? Yeah, that, my mother. Thank you. Where's John Michelson? I figure John Michelson have been to Graceland. Has he been to Graceland? No, okay. I bet he goes one day. There are 600,000 Americans that visit Graceland every year. It's the most visited memorial in the world. Can you believe it? Now, why would they do that? They, they go to visit Graceland to see Elvis's grave, to pay their respects. It, it's, uh, no, one, no, one, no one even knows where Jesus' tomb was. They don't even know. Because it didn't matter, you see? It didn't matter where he was buried because Jesus rose from the dead. Elvis's tomb is special because he died. Jesus is alive. And so for his disciples, the tomb was just another spoon rest, right? Just an artifact. They worship, they celebrate, they know the risen and resurrected Jesus. This story addresses the disciples' doubts, but it also addresses our doubts too. It's a comfort to us. It's a peace. So Jesus is there, present with them. Jesus addresses their doubts. And then you see what Jesus does. He does the same thing that he did with uh, the men on the road to Emmaus. He takes them to Scripture. He, ta he takes them to Scripture. He gives them peace by having a Bible study. Are you with me? Which would be pretty amazing, right? Having a Bible study with Jesus. He opens the scripture. He opens their minds. It says in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that sort of uh, shorthand for saying all of scripture, all of the Old Testament, it must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He has a Bible study, right? It seems so simple. It seemed, he, he, Jesus, who had been with them for years and years, Jesus, who had, who had, had continually taught them, read scripture with them, had, had, not, had lived this gospel out to them, was their direct leader, was, was God with them more personally than he had been with anyone else. He opens the Bible. This is how you're going to have peace. This is how Jesus chose to comfort his disciples. Do you want peace, church? Sit down and open your Bible. Sit with your friends. Open Scripture together. Read the Bible together. Jesus begins to walk these terrified men and women through the Scriptures. Again, not necessarily to teach them. You know what? I, 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 wrote some, I, really, I forgot to tell you about this thing. Let me make sure you get this one fine piece of theology and doctrine. I, for, I forgot to tell you while I was with you. I'm glad I have a second chance. Why don't you open with me to Genesis, right? That's not what he does. He, he begin, he's comforting his disciples. He's trying to encourage his disciples in the midst of what is a very terrifying moment to them. And he chooses to remind them of the reason and the rationale for peace. Because it, it, as we open the scriptures, as we read the story of God, we realize that God is, is a faithful God. God has been making good on his promises since the creation of the world. God is trustworthy. Charles Spurgeon said, our Lord Jesus differs from all other teachers. 
He says, they mostly reach the ear, but Jesus instructs the heart. They deal with the outward letter, but he imparts the inward taste for the truth. That's what he does with his disciples. He says, in the school of grace, the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, unfolds the mysteries of his kingdom. Church, we need to be reminded of the trustworthiness of God. We need to be reminded of his, of his perfect plan, his plan made perfect since creation. We need, we need instruction, we need encouragement, we need correction. For us to have shalom, we need to be people of the word. And Jesus not only takes them to scripture, but he takes them to the very heart of scripture. Here's the next point. He preaches the gospel to them. Again, just think of that moment where Jesus is preaching the gospel to you. He opens the scriptures and he gets right to the heart. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. I was talking to Brandy about this passage uh, earlier this week. And I, I've always been compelled by the way that, that Luke puts this. He's quoting Jesus, of course. But the, he, he captures, he captures, I think, the complexity and the tension found within the gospel. Right, Because he says, you're preaching both. You're preaching both repentance and what? Forgiveness, you see? I think it's actually easy for us to sort of overemphasize one over the other. Just to sort of beat the drum of condemnation and repentance, sort of turn and burn, turn or burn mentality, right? Or to just high five each other because God's forgiven us, right? And forget about what he's forgiven us from, there's this, this beautiful balance here that we, we begin to understand repentance in light of forgiveness. It's both and. The gospel is that we should, we should repent, we should live differently, we should change our behavior, we should have different lives because we are forgiven completely in Christ. You can't have one without the other. Jesus knew what they needed then for peace and he knows what we need now for peace. We need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. There's that, there's that passage in Peter where uh, it, it talks about the angels sort of back and forth uh, preaching the gospel to one another. Well, oftentimes, again, we, we reduce the idea of the gospel as something that non-believers need to hear. As opposed to something that we every day need to be reminded of, to be, to, be, to be anchored in, to be washed by. And Jesus, he sits with them. He'd been with them for years and years. And he sits with them. He opens scripture and he begins to preach them the gospel. That same old story. To comfort his friends. We're a forgetful people, church. We're a forgetful people. We, we are a people quick to grow indifferent, to grow distracted. And Jesus anchors us. He pulls us back into this place and he says, remember, you need forgiveness and repentance. And Jesus not only gives them the gospel, but we see what he does here. He gives them a mission. He gives them a mission. He says, I, I, want you to, I want you to preach this message to the nations beginning right here in Jerusalem. It's, it's important for us to understand that the gospel is not just for you and me. The gospel is not, the gospel of peace is not just the gospel of peace for you and me. It is that, right? But it's so much more. It's, it's, a, it's a gospel of peace for the nations. Pe peace does not have an end user, you see? 
Peace multiplies. We are conduits for peace. Peace never just ends with one person. We are not given peace for ourselves, but for the world. Jesus knows that for us to have true and lasting shalom, that that peace of God must flow through us to the nations. It's similar to what Jesus says, uh, even in the book of Luke, that, that you're never going to find yourself until you lose yourself. If you think, if you've, if you've zeroed in and think all the, all the promises of Christ, all the benefits of the gospel, all the rewards in the kingdom, they're there for me, I'm here to claim them, and you forget that we are, we are the people of God sent out into the world to be the body of Christ on mission together, we'll never really understand who we are. And we'll not rest in that comfort and peace of Christ without being compelled to share that peace with the world. Here's number six. Here's the last one. Jesus gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. He he doesn't send us out alone. He didn't send them out alone. He doesn't send us out alone. He fulfills his promise as he always does. He fulfills his promise of giving them the spirit. And what does he say? This is beautiful language in verse 48. To be clothed with power from on high. Isn't that great? To be clothed with power from on high. We're, we're, We're not alone, church. We're not alone, church. We are blessed with shalom. The shalom of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. We still have Emmanuel. We still have God with us, but not, not, uh, but now God is not visibly present, though He's not visibly present with us in the person of Christ on earth as He was with His disciples. He is present internally with us. That's what's so interesting that when Jesus says that he will go away, the disciples kind of freak out. And he says, don't worry, it's actually good for you that I go away because I'm going to send you my spirit. I'm going to be with you in a, in a deeper way than I was even with you now sitting here having a meal. He clothes us with power from on high. He gives us the spirit. He is present through the power of the spirit to give us joy, to give us peace, to, to comfort us, to give us instruction, to, get, to convict us of our sins. It is still God with us. Jesus doesn't dismiss our doubts. He calls us to our Bibles. He calls us to be people of the word. He comforts us with the gospel and he sends us out with a mission. He promises to be present with us even now through the power of the Holy Spirit. I I, I chose this text this morning thinking about this, this sort of hinge moment, right? One year ending and a new year beginning. It's an important message for us all. With, with all of our self-reflection on the past, we, we, we sort of look back, and I, I do this compulsively. I'm always, I'm always self-assessing myself, the family, the church. I always trying to improve things, make things better. And I'm looking back at 2017, and here's where I blew it, and here's what, here's what was really working. I want to make sure I keep those things. Here's what needs to change. As I'm looking back in self-reflection on 2017, and I'm looking ahead with anticipation about 2018, about what I want to, what I want to see, what I'm, I'm hoping that God does, the, the promises that I'm, I'm believing in whatever new resolutions I want to think through for the future, all all my fears and all my anxieties, all my hopes, what I'm really needing here, what I'm really longing for is this message in the Gospel of Luke, I'm longing for the promise of peace. 
that's not contingent on my circumstances. That's not, that's not dependent on how 2017 went. That's not dependent on how 2018 might go. I need a shalom anchored in the gospel. This peace is only found in Christ. This is the central theme through the gospel of Luke. That from, from creation to conception, from the, cradle, from the cradle to the cross to the kingdom, the message is, Jesus says to us, peace. Peace be with you. Let me say a prayer for us this morning.